John chapter 20, and we'll be reading verses 30 and 31. Please give your attention to God's word. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We're beginning a study of the Gospel of John this morning. I don't know how long it'll take, but we will be looking at this over the course of this year at least, I'm sure. And so, encouraging you to spend some extra time, maybe, in your devotional time to reading God's Word in the Gospel of John and studying it, maybe picking up a commentary to help study along with us as we go through this on Sunday mornings. But instead of starting at chapter 1, verse 1, I'm sure you've noticed, I've done something that you wouldn't normally do with an ordinary book. It's actually a bad idea usually to jump to the end of the book and read in the final chapter or two before beginning the book. But I'm doing that for a particular purpose because in these two verses I just read, John gives his purpose for writing the book. And I think it's important that we understand that before we begin a long study of the Gospel of John. If you've never read the book of John before, then here's a spoiler alert. The central character dies near the end, but in one of the most incredible twists of any story, he is raised from the dead. And after his resurrection, he meets with his 12 disciples on several occasions, and the very last account of his meeting with his disciples includes kind of a curious little conversation that the risen Lord Jesus Christ has with the chief apostle in many ways, Peter. Peter, at the end of chapter 21, if you just flip over there for a second, Jesus and Peter have this conversation, which we won't go into, but it's a conversation about another one of the disciples, the disciple John, the very author of the book that we'll be studying. And at the end of that conversation, after recounting that conversation, John kind of ends his gospel with a signature, so to speak. In verse 24, he says this, the one that Jesus and Peter were talking about, John, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, it's interesting that John writes indirectly about himself, and that's typical of how he writes about himself throughout the book of John. He writes about himself in third person, and the fact that he does that has led many to question, is it really John who wrote the book? But it's clear if you take the whole book together that he is referring to himself, but he's referring to himself indirectly because I think of the humility that the Christ has taught him. He doesn't want to draw attention to himself as the author. He wants to keep the spotlight of attention upon the central figure of the gospel, who is Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, John four times in the gospel refers to himself only as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, you could read that in a sense of him making himself out to be special, like Jesus loved him more than anybody else, but that's not what he's saying. Instead of saying the disciple who loved Jesus, 
Instead of putting the focus on how much he loved the Lord, he puts the focus on how much the Lord loved him. It's actually a statement of humility. Not the disciple who pursued Jesus, not the disciple who obeyed Jesus, not the disciple who loved Jesus, but the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm going to ask you right now, if I die in the near future and there's a tombstone at my grave, put that on my tombstone. I would just love to have that as the title on my tombstone, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The focus is on the amazement that Jesus could love a sinner like you or I. And that's the attitude that John has as he writes this book. And so that's how John wants to be known, as the disciple whom Jesus loved, and then secondly, as we've seen in the verse we read just a moment ago, as a faithful eyewitness to the life, sufferings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A loved disciple and a faithful eyewitness. That's all John wants us to know about him. To the point where it's the end of that last verse we read in chapter 21. We know that his testimony is true. That is John's primary concern. That we believe that his testimony is true. John was, interestingly, a disciple of John the Baptist before he was a disciple of Jesus. And John was one of the two first disciples to follow Jesus. And to be chosen as Jesus' disciples. To live with Jesus day in and day out. To eat meals with Jesus every day. To sleep at his side every every night. To witness all of his teachings, all of his miracles, all of his interactions with everyone. Over the course of those three years of Jesus' public ministry. Not only was he one of the twelve chosen disciples... But he was one of that inner circle of three. John and his brother James and Peter were put in a special position by Jesus to be witness to some things that the other disciples weren't witness to. And John was so close to Jesus that at the crucifixion, as Jesus hung dying on the cross, there was John at the foot of the cross and Jesus' mother, Mary. And you remember that Jesus, as he was dying, he looked at Mary and he said, pointing, alluding to John, he said, Woman, behold your son. And to John, he said, Behold your mother. That's how close John was to Jesus, that Jesus entrusted the care of his own earthly mother to the care of John, the disciple. And when Mary Magdalene came back to the disciples after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and shared the news with them that the tomb was empty, it was Peter and John that ran to the tomb. And it was John who outran Peter and was the first to go into the empty tomb. And it says he, of all the disciples, of every single human that's ever lived, he was the first to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. John was a close, highly qualified, highly credible eyewitness to the life, sufferings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
If you don't believe that this was important, that we understand this in John's mind, just go over to his epistle for a second. First John, the letter that John wrote, not the gospel, but the first John, his first epistle. Listen to how he begins this letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. He saw, he heard, he tasted, he touched right there at the side of Christ. And John understood that he was appointed by Christ. He was divinely appointed to be this eyewitness to Christ. And he talks about the enormity of the mission in that very last verse of his gospel. Go back to chapter 21 for a second. The very last verse says, Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could that would be written. And so he's got this massive amount of things that he could write about Christ, that he had learned about Christ before his birth, about his birth, about his life, about his sufferings, about his crucifixion, about his resurrection, about his ascension. He could write about all these things, and yet... He only shared a small part of that. What we have in the Gospel of John is an edited version of the life of Christ. John couldn't record everything that Jesus said and did, so how did he decide what to share with us? How did he decide what the Lord wanted him to record as a faithful eyewitness? Now, it's obvious that none of the Gospel writers were biographers in the strict sense of the word. None of them attempted to give an overarching and comprehensive record of the life of Christ. By and large, they covered three years of his earthly life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke covered similar ground. A lot of parallels, a lot of parallel passages when you go from Matthew to Mark to Luke. And they were called the Synoptic Gospels because there is a lot of similarity. They wrote for different audiences and with slightly different purposes, But there's a lot of similarity between those three Gospels. But John is extremely different. John was very selective about what to include in what he wrote in his Gospel. And he had a very clear theological concern to what he chose. Matter of fact, John alludes to a lot of other teachings and miracles and things that Jesus did that he assumes that his readers already know about. And part of the reason for that is that John wrote his gospel probably when he was in his 80s. He wrote many years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written. And so he's assuming that the accounts of those gospels are pretty well known in the church and even beyond the church. And so he's able to allude to them and focus in on certain things that Jesus did and certain things that he taught that he felt either hadn't been fully disclosed or that were important to his central driving point 
of his gospel. It's interesting that John only includes accounts of seven of Jesus' miracles. It's also interesting that two-thirds of the gospel of John, two-thirds of the content of the gospel of John is written about the last week of Jesus' life. Just the last week. And of that content, seven of the 21 chapters cover one 24-hour period in the life of Christ. So obviously John had a God-given agenda to what he revealed about the life of Christ. It's interesting, I don't know if many of you saw a very good movie that came out recently just called Lincoln about, not about the life of Abraham Lincoln, interestingly in a very similar way, it's only about the last few months of the, pre- of the presidency of Abraham Lincoln. But as you watch the movie, you realize that as, even though you're only seeing a few months of his life, you're getting an awful lot of profound insight into who Abraham Lincoln was as a person and what impact he had through his presidency. And that's really the way John approaches this. Even though most of what he writes is really only about a week of Jesus' life, and particularly about one 24-hour period of his life, he tells us what we need to know, especially in light of all the other revelation that's given in God's Word. It's actually remarkable what John leaves out in his Gospel. He leaves out the birth of Christ. There's no birth narrative. He leaves out the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. He leaves out the Sermon on the Mount. That very important teaching that Christ gave early in his ministry. He doesn't include any of the parables of Jesus. I find that interesting. Jesus was known for teaching in parables, but John doesn't actually include any of those parables. He felt that the other gospel writers had done that sufficiently. He doesn't include the transfiguration, even though he was a witness, one of that inner circle of three that actually witnessed the transfiguration. And he didn't include, at the end, an account of the ascension of Christ after his resurrection. On the other hand, John includes many things that the other gospel writers left out. The miracle of turning water to wine at the wedding at Cana. The conversation, the crucial conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. The conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. The account of the man born blind and then cast out of of the temple after Jesus healed him. The account of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Those crucial teachings about Jesus as the good shepherd or Jesus as the true vine. Or the great high priestly prayer of John 17. Or the washing of the feet of the disciples and many of the teachings of the upper room. Those are things that you can only find in John's gospel. So John is divinely called to be an eyewitness to the, to a select set of historical events and teachings from the life of Christ. It is edited history, not revisionist history. He doesn't change it. It's an accurate account of what he chose to reveal to us. But it's not a comprehensive account of the life of Christ. Why did he choose what he chose? And that's what he answers in the verses that we read at the beginning. Go back to the end of chapter 20. Listen to what John says. 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the grand purpose of the Gospel of John. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The key to understanding his entire gospel is right there. He's talking about faith. Your faith. My faith. The faith of the elect of every age. That's why he wrote this gospel. And he's pointing here to the basis of that faith, which is so important to understand. We have such a vague corrupted view of what faith is in this day and age. But John tells us what the basis of our faith must be. Matter of fact, it's interesting, you have to look at this to understand what Jesus or what John says here at the end of chapter 20. You have to look at it in the context of the rest of John chapter 20. John chapter 20 is about the appearances of Christ after his crucifixion and after his resurrection. And you have these different accounts of him meeting with his disciples. And towards the middle of the chapter, you have, well, actually, at the beginning of the chapter, you have where Jesus appeared to his 10 of his disciples, not 12, but 10 of his disciples, on the very evening of his resurrection, Easter evening. Of course, 10, because Judas had betrayed Christ and had committed suicide by this point. And Thomas, for some unknown reason, wasn't there. But Jesus appeared to the other ten. And from that point on, the other ten went to Thomas, the one who had missed out on the meeting, and said, Jesus is alive. He's appeared to us. He's spoken to us. And you remember Thomas's reaction. Thomas said, unless I see his wounds, unless I'm able to touch, even put my hand into his wounds, I will never believe. And then a week later, on the Lord's Day again, the first day of the week, Jesus appeared to his disciples, and this time Thomas was there. And Jesus said to Thomas, See me, touch my wounds, put your hand in my side, whatever it takes, and believe. And Thomas was stunned. He was in awe. And out of his mouth comes the greatest confession of faith that you're going to find anywhere in all of Scripture. He says, my Lord and my God. An incredible confession of faith from the one who doubted the most at the point of the resurrection. If you know Old Testament Hebrew, you know that when somebody says, my Lord and my God, it would immediately to a Jewish person, you would think of the Old Testament Hebrew title for God, which was Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh, the Lord, the personal name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Yahweh, the covenant name of God for his people. Elohim, meaning God, the Lord, God, Yahweh, our God. That's what Thomas was saying. That's who he was confessing Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, to be. And this, actually, this event is the crescendo of the entire Gospel of John. 
Why? Because he says immediately after this, he says, this is why I have written these things to you, so that you might share in the confession of Thomas the disciple, so that you might hear and believe and fall to your knees before Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, and say, my Lord and my God. That's why these things are written to you. This is a key moment. The apostolic witness is now complete. All of the true disciples, the ones chosen before the foundation of the world, the ones that are the the apostles, the ones appointed by Christ to be his eyewitnesses, the entire company is now complete. And they're ready to be sent out into the world with this account, this message, this truth to make disciples of all nations. It's interesting what Jesus says in response to Thomas's confession of faith. Now, if Jesus did not claim to be God, if he did not, if he felt that this was as a good Jewish rabbi, that this was blasphemous to, to declare a human being to be God, if he felt that that was wrong, he would have rebuked Thomas on the spot, but he doesn't rebuke him at all. He says to him instead, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He pronounces, he takes the occasion of Thomas's confession based on seeing and pronounces a blessing upon you and me and everyone who has ever believed the apostolic witness and said, it is blessed to believe based on sight, but it is far more blessed to believe based on the testimony of God's appointed eyewitnesses. That's what the apostles consistently claimed. And it's important in a day as such as today that we be reminded of this over and over. The apostles were eyewitnesses appointed by God to bring us the truth about Jesus Christ. Listen to what Peter says in first, uh, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word made full, more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The faith of the apostles was great. They saw the signs, they saw the miracles, they heard the teachings, and they believed. But faith based upon the faithfulness of God and the trustworthiness of his word is even better. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says in his commentary on these verses. He says, what is the highest method of knowing something? I submit to you that the highest source of truth that we can possibly have is the word of God. The testimony of the word of God is higher than rational deduction, higher than empirical evidence, higher than historical testimony. That is what Jesus was saying here. He did not say that hearsay is better evidence than eyewitness testimony. You could interpret what he meant you know, what Jesus said in that way. He's not saying that hearsay in general 
is better than eyewitness testimony. What he's saying is believing in God's word because God, you believe God's word is faithful and trustworthy is better than having to have signs in order to believe it. That's what he's saying. Sproul goes on to say, the Bible is better than any epistemological source known to human science or investigation, and the author of the Bible is pleased when men receive the testimony of sacred scripture, get on their knees and say, my Lord and my God. You see, faith is not a leap into the darkness. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 3, Jesus says that faith is coming out of the darkness into the light. Faith is not believing in something contrary to physical evidence or experience or reason. Faith is a reasonable interpretation and a reasonable response to the evidence that's available. And that faith is something that we can only have by the grace of God. It's a gift from God. But when God gives the gift of faith, you come out of darkness into light and your corrupt, twisted reason and rationality is made able to interpret the evidence correctly. Our faith is a rational faith and it's a gift from God. John says that he recorded the signs of Jesus so that we might believe. Biblically speaking, when it says signs... It's talking about the miracles that Jesus or the prophets or the apostles did, but it's not talking about them just in the sense of being something that, that draws attention just for the sake of drawing attention, but these are signs that point to something. A sign always points to something greater, something the meaning is really in what it points to, not in the sign itself. The miracles that the prophets did, the miracles that Jesus did, the miracles that the apostles did, Those were signs that authenticated them as God's messengers. And it authenticated their message as coming from God himself. And that's why we believe in the words of the prophets, in the words of Jesus, in the words of the apostles. Signs aren't meant to be an ongoing crutch for faith. And unfortunately, there are people in churches today who believe that they need miracles in order to have faith. The miracles aren't given to shore up our faith from time to time. The miracles were given to the prophets, to Moses as he gave the law, to the prophets as they gave their writings, to Jesus as he gave us the gospel, and to the apostles as they gave us the account of the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. That's why the miracles were given, as signs to point to God's messengers to authenticate their message so that we would believe their message and receive the blessing that Jesus talked about. Chapter 20 of John's Gospel is full of eyewitness testimony. Verifiable history in the day in which it was given. And it's a reasonable belief that these eyewitness accounts are literally historically true. And our faith is based upon that. We talked a couple weeks ago about epistemology. How do we know what we know? And if you think about it, there's an awful lot of things that you know in life that you don't know from personal experience or observing evidence, but you believe it because your parents or teachers or professors or experts have told you that it's true. 
And that's what John is claiming here for us. He's saying, I am an expert in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. I am a God-appointed eyewitness. And your eternal destiny is based on whether you believe that what John reveals to us is true. The apostolic witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is credible, and its truth has been verified not just by historical sources, but in the experience of the church of Jesus Christ throughout 20 centuries. And it's been verified in my own experience as I have believed the message and have watched it transform my own life and the lives of believers around me. The basis of our faith is the apostolic witness to Jesus Christ. The focus, therefore, of our faith is on Christ himself. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that belief inherently means trusting in him as a person. He is here. He is the host of this meal that we will partake of in a moment. He is risen He is the Lord of the church. He is the Lord of all creation. As a result, we don't believe in a religion. We don't believe in a moral code. We don't have faith in faith. We believe in the Jesus of history, the promised Messiah, and the eternal, unique Son of God, the one who is my Lord and my God. You're all, many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with C.S. Lewis and his book, Mere Christianity tells us that this apostolic eyewitness to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, this demands a response from everyone, Lewis says. If it is accurate, if it is historical, if it is true, then we either need to reject Jesus Christ as a liar because he knew that what he said and claimed was not true, but yet proclaimed it anyway, or he was a lunatic because it wasn't true, but he believed it to be true. Or we need to get on our knees like Thomas before him and bow before him and worship him and say, my Lord and my God, because the eyewitness account to Jesus Christ is true and he was and is everything he claimed to be. These historical facts about Jesus Christ are essential to our faith. They lead us to Jesus who is God. The Jesus who was born of a virgin. The Jesus who lived a life of sinless perfection. And the Jesus who died as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He died in our place. He bore the wrath of God against our sins as a blood atonement. And then he was raised from the dead victorious over sin and death. And he reigns at the right hand of God in heaven. If these things aren't history, if they did not literally happen, then our faith is in vain, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and we are dead and lost in our sins. But as Paul says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Our study of John is intended to strengthen our faith in Jesus are living daily, trusting, relying upon, depending upon Jesus as our Lord and our God. And then John finally wraps it up by saying the goal of our faith. He says that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
That's what happens when you believe and trust in Christ as your Lord and God. You receive life. In the Gospel of John, we're going to find out that real life begins with a new spiritual birth from above. That it is life in the presence and with the help and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And that it is abundant life that is eternal. As John will say over in chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. It happens at the point of belief. That's why we have this historical account, so that we might believe and pass over from death to life. Life is more than biological existence. I hope it's more than that for you. Life is more than enjoying physical and sensual pleasures. Life is more than having a family and a house and a career. Abundant life, as John will define it for us, is knowing God. And knowing God is knowing Jesus Christ. Because as Hebrews 1 puts it, He, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Let me close with these words from 1 John chapter 5. Go to the end of his first epistle. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. Listen to what John says there. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. John's eyewitness account in his gospel is given to us that we might either come to believe if we do not yet believe, or that we may be strengthened in our belief in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in order that by believing, we might have the abundant life that is in his name. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this study of the Gospel of John, I pray that our ability to see the risen and glorified Christ might be increased, that we might believe in him more strongly, that we might bow before him more consistently, that we might live in joyful and thankful obedience to him more consistently. Lord, strengthen our faith. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that hasn't put their faith in Christ, I pray that the apostolic witness and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in their heart might bring about a change, a transformation, and a relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.